everybody into episode 20 of justified pursuit thank you so much for being here uh chisholm and i have a great guest lined up for you today and major general clayton Huttmacher, two-star general from the 160th special ops aviation regiment aka the night stalkers uh so you know, when you talk about a 40-year career of service in the military and someone who has risen to the level of a major general, obviously they have some leadership qualities. And, and Chisholm and I both believe that leadership and service are two things not only, you know, lacking in this country as far as real leaders being present in American society, but also the, the idea of service. And I know Chisholm has said it multiple times in this podcast, but how do you be a part of someone else's story? You know, isn't it more than just about you? And that mentality of service is something that we all should strive for as well. And now in his post-military civilian life, um, Major General Huttmacher is the president and CEO of the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit that is essential in making sure that the children of special ops personnel killed in action, uh, severely wounded, I mean, you name it, he'll, he'll provide some more detail on that, but um, they make sure that these kiddos receive an education all the way through college. They don't they don't leave any of them behind. And we're talking about hundreds of kids here over the years. So uh, we'll get into that as well because certainly a justified pursuit in and of its own with the uh, Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Of course, we'll also have to ask the general uh, for a few examples of when he thought it was the end of the line for him while in combat. I'm sure there are some hairy situations that uh, he wouldn't mind talking about as well. So, without further ado, let's dive into that conversation right now. General, thanks so much for joining us today, and thanks for your service. My pleasure. So, where are you? Uh, where are you chiming in from on this? I am. I am. I am dialing in from Tampa, Florida, uh, just outside of McDill Air Force Base, where I live. 
Oh, right on. Your Bucks are about to uh, play in the Super Bowl. Yes, they are. Trust me, that is a uh, a topic. I was, uh, you know, pretty popular topic around here. I was up by the uh, Raymond James Stadium where they're going to play the other day, and it's Super Bowl mania up there. Luckily, I live a few miles away from there. I wish I had tickets. <laughs> I'm a season ticket holder, and I was waiting for the lottery to select me and. Uh, but oh. sadly, my phone is not rang, so I'm not liking okay. my chances. Well, so how does it feel just pledging your allegiance to a mercenary for one season? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I can see there is a little hostility out there. <laughs> well, my wife's from New England, and uh, she loves Brady. Um, and, uh, you know, I... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. He may go an extra year. If I were him and I win the Super Bowl, which I know is going to be a hell of a fight against the Chiefs led by Mahomes, but uh-huh. if he did, I would step out right at the top of your game. But yeah. maybe he'll prove us wrong, and he won't be the one-year mercenary you're referring to. Yeah. Well, I think, I think yeah, there's something to say for going out on top. I think the last one to do that was John Elway uh, won the Super Bowl and then hung up his cleats. So who knows? But He's certainly the goat, and I guess oh, yeah. you're not... he's in a class all by himself. He's you know he he lives well. He I don't know if he's still there, but they when they first got here, they rented Derek Jeter's house hmm. on Davis Island in downtown Tampa, which is like twenty nine thousand square feet. So oh wow, yeah, yeah probably a little cramped, <laughs> right? Uh, I, you know, I but, think I'm a lifelong. Well, Chisholm and I both are Cowboys fans, and and I think I'd I'm be able. So to, sorry to hear that. You guys I are know. Kind of broken now for some. Reason. <sighs> I know, I, but you know, I don't think I'd lose any sleep if we just hired or you know signed a, a player for a year, and he got us to the Super Bowl. I'd be, I'd that, be was, with it. that was that was going to be my two cents. Mm-hmm. Was that I think Cable would sign up for a year of Tom Brady right now in a without, heartbeat. Without... <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I can tell you're you're. Uh... Your criticism of Brady is a little shallow. Only, only that he's not on the Cowboys. Right, right. <laughs> There's well, he's pretty impervious, man. That guy is. Uh, his, he's incredible. I mean, his yeah. judgment and how he sees the field. I mean, the guy's incredible. He's like forty, what forty three? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's he, the amazing yeah. thing, and he could still throw it downfield, unlike right. Breeze, whose arm, you know, fell off this year. Yeah, he said that uh, I saw in an interview that he was considering uh, he would he would seriously consider playing past 45. Wow. Wow. Well, he takes good care of himself. So he uh, does. Well, Chisholm and I both listened to a show you did with the Black Rifle Coffee guys and certainly found it interesting. You've you've lived a fascinating life. So. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, your 40 year career in the military. Just keep it, keep in mind, we probably won't get as technical. Um, a lot of our audience is, is probably not uh, military active uh-huh. or retired. Uh, I'd say they're just from the civilian sector. We certainly appreciate all of those who have served. And, um, but yeah, I know you started out when you were 17 years old. On this yeah, program. I did. I, uh, you know, true story. I didn't really share it that much when I was in active, active duty, but I mean, some at certain crowds I did, but I, I didn't go out of my way to share it. But, you know, when I joined the military, I was living in a foster home. Um, I had been homeless and I had dropped out of high school 
and just knew that I needed a uh, kick in the ass. And, you know, what better way to jump in the deep end of the pool and join the Marine Corps. So mm. I signed up when I was 17. And uh, when I got off the bus at the Marine Corps recruit depot down in San Diego, it was not the warm, embracing hug, welcome to the team that I was anticipating. Let's put it that way. It was uh, a little rude. And for about a week and a half, I had, uh, I firmly believe that I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, but, you know, I just went day to day. And anyway, I, you know, I got through it and I did fine. And the Marine Corps was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. I went back to school at night as soon as I could when I got out to the Fleet Marine Forces, the FMF, and, you know, not only finished my high school diploma, but started going to college and ultimately ended up with a couple of masters. But, um, you know, the Marine Corps taught me a lot of, um, about a lot about self-discipline and standards. Mm-hmm. And then later I, about six and a half years after I was in the Marine Corps, um, I found out about a program the army had the army warrant officer flight program that another Marine that I knew was applying for. And I applied for it and was selected and uh, graduated Army Flight School as a, a UH-60 Blackhawk pilot in June of 1985 as a warrant officer junior grade, W-01. Uh, flew a tour with the 101st Airborne Division. And while I loved flying, um, I, didn't, I, I didn't have the leadership opportunities as a warrant officer that I thought I would, you know, as an NCO, you're a non-commissioned officer, you know, you're in leadership positions, Um, but not the warrant officer corps for all the services really more technically focused. And so I wanted more. So I went to officer candidate school at Fort Benning. And uh, right before I went there, I heard about this secret unit uh, in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Uh, called the 160th Special Ops Aviation Group at the time, and now it's a regiment. So I put in my application there, and they told me to go away. I didn't have enough flight experience. Mm -hmm. And then I, when I graduated officer Canada school in October of 87, I called him again and said, hey, I'm just getting out. I'm already a rated aviator, and I'd really love to get a chance to try out for the unit. You just can't get assigned there. You've got to go through a selection-type process. And they agreed, and I did, and I went there as a young second lieutenant, and my timing was impeccable. I got there at the tail end of an operation, well, not the tail end, but about midway through an operation called Prime Chance, which was taking place in the Persian Gulf. We were operating off of barges, um, going after the Iranians that were laying mines, trying to sink tankers transiting the Gulf. And I rolled right in from that, did three tours over there doing that. And then I went to Panama during Operation Just Cause. Right after that, we ended up in Desert Storm. I mean, it was one, two, three, you know, boom, boom, boom. Mm. And then uh, did some, picked up some war criminals over in Bosnia a couple of years later and numerous other things. But I stay, you know, I started in the uh, 160th as a, as, you know, a second lieutenant. And ultimately, I ended up commanding their first battalion of the 160th, their largest battalion. And I ended up commanding the regiment. And 
ultimately I made, uh, I made general officer and I served two tours as a uh, general officer at Fort Bragg, one tour in Korea as the deputy commander of the second infantry division and finished up my career at uh, McDill Air Force Base down here as the uh, J3, the director of operations for United States oh. Special Operations Command responsible, my staff and I responsible for coordinating special op, global special operations daily and interacting with the joint staff and the Department of Defense and everyone else. After I retired, I, um, I fell upon this position to take over the Special Ops Warrior Foundation from the very, very capable Vice Admiral Joe McGuire who was leaving the position to go back up to DC in the service of the government to be the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so for the last two and a half years, I've been building on his good work and his predecessor, Colonel retired John Carney, another great American, and continuing uh, the work they've done. So I flew Little Birds uh, guns and uh, an armed variant of the Black Hawk called the DAP for the majority of my career. I've flown other airplanes, but that's what I did for most of it. So anyway, that's, that's my career. Well, I wanted to, uh, to hit on the 101st airborne and I, you know, it's the main, uh, the main arm of the, um, military there in band of brothers, one of my favorite series. And during quarantine, I went back and watched it for like the first time in probably a decade. Uh, there's a lot of history though. And I'm sure that was kind of, I don't know, is that something that's worn as kind of a badge of honor uh, to say that you're a part of such a uh, esteemed unit? Yeah, I, I, I would say so. I mean, I, the army is different than the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps is Marine Corps centric, like you're a Marine. It does nobody really cares what division you served in, in the Marine Corps, but the army is, is much different. They're very divisional centric. Um, so is the 101st have any special processes or assessments to get into like I had to go through to get into the 160th? Uh, no. Uh -huh. Are they a unit, a very proud unit with a rich history and part of the 18th Airborne Corps? Yes. Um, they, along with the 82nd, I would say, you know, tout themselves as the best divisions in the Army. That being said, I think if you went to 1st Cavalry Division or 4th Infantry Division or any of the other divisions, they'd all tell you they have the best division in the Army, too, which is what you know, I would want, I would hope to hear. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the 101st had a, has a huge, huge um, amount of things to be proud of. You know, their history, what they've done, as you referenced the Band of Brothers, and since then, you know, one of the, orig the original Airborne unit. Um, yeah, I, I think they're a very, I think they're a great unit. I, I was a medevac pilot there for about 18 months and, uh -huh. and certainly was grateful for my time there. I will tell you that the pointy end of the spear in aviation, in my opinion, was my time in the 160th. That's for sure. I, I tell people, I don't get into, you know, neat, um, recent operational details just to mm -hmm. keep, you know, it's not my business to do that, but I will tell you that if, something bad's happening to somebody bad in the world and there's helicopters involved and the U S is involved. It's probably the one sixtieth. Okay. So y'all are in the shit, so to speak. 
Yep, I would. I've certainly been in that seat more than a few times, wishing I was somewhere else. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get into some of those moments momentarily, mm-hmm. uh, but it, you, you clearly have this passion for leadership. Hell, you don't make it to major general two-star without the ability to lead. And, and now you're leading the special operations warrior foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about its function, who it serves and, and why you wanted to become involved with it. Um. Sure, I'd love to. Thanks for that opportunity. Well, I never, I you know, when I retired, I didn't know what I was going to do. But uh, you know, working in a nonprofit, you know, wasn't something that I had seriously considered. I wasn't against it. I just it just wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. When this job came available and I was in, uh, approached about it, it was a it was an easy yes for me, and it was an easy yes for me and I'll get into it in a minute on what you do but I'll lead into it with when I was the 160th special ops aviation regiment commander out of Fort Campbell and I was a regiment commander from 2008 to 2010 during that time of an 06 level unit a colonel-led unit the 160th had suffered the most casualties of any other special ops unit at the colonel level since 9-11. I don't know that that's true today, but it was true at the time. And, you know, we have a a black granite wall memorial in front of our headquarters. And every every Memorial Day, we hold a ceremony and we invite back all of our gold star, all of our families have fallen. And... And that for what, if we've lost anybody in the previous 12 months, we honor them specifically when we add their names to the wall with the date they were killed and the aircraft they were flying and a few other details. What I learned early on as a commander is that that name that's etched on that wall, you know, that name of that soldier that was lost is, is really just a small part of the story. The tip of the iceberg, I guess, is another way to put it. The real tragedy is the entire family behind that name. Their lives were changed in the blink of an eye. You know, they opened their door to find a unit representative, a chaplain, and maybe one other person there in their dress uniforms informing them that their loved one had been killed in their service to the nation. Wow. I was involved in countless of those events. And to see what the family goes through is is pretty sobering and it really gives you a true appreciation for the cost of freedom. And I'm not being melodramatic here. And I think if you talk to any leader in the military, they would share the same. So with that as a backdrop, you know, the Special Ops Warrior Foundation was created nearly 41 years ago. In April, April 24th, it'll be 41 years. It was created in the aftermath of the failed attempt to rescue 52 American hostages from Iran. As you may or may not know, the, <clears throat> that mission failed at a place called Desert One, a remote desert refueling site where the helicopters were gonna re- be refueled and they were gonna go to a hype site and the next day they were gonna fly into the US Embassy in Tehran and execute the rescue of those 52 Americans. They never got that far. There was a crash in the middle of the desert between a helicopter and a C-130 to claim the lives of eight Americans. Mm. 
five U.S. Air Force Air Commandos, and three Marines. Those eight that we lost left behind 17 kids. And the other members of that mission that made it out of the desert that night made a personal commitment to fund the education, to do what they could to fund the education of those 17 kids. And they did that. And the foundation continues today. We have got today, right now, as I speak, we have 966 children in our program. The youngest one is just over a year old. He turned, Dustin Gabrielard turned one year for January. Uh, his father, Dustin Ard, was a Sergeant First Class Green Beret that was killed in August of 2019. He will be with us until he graduates college somewhere around the year 2042 to give you an idea mm. of how far out that is. And so that's, you know, in our programs that started, you know, very modestly with taking care of those 17 kids. And now we have 966 in there, our ongoing mission. And we really have two missions. Our, our first mission is we provide immediate financial support to severely wounded, ill, or injured special ops personnel. Severely is defined as inpatient hospitalization. We overnight them up to a 5K check to take care of unforecast expenses that are associated with that injury or illness. And we also send them a a device sort of like an Alexa that is a video communication device so they can stay in contact with their loved ones while they're in the hospital. That's been especially well received since COVID has hit where, you know, obviously visitation is severely limited. Yeah, so I that's can one personally, of our I can sorry, personally, oh, I was just going to say, I, I personally have been affected by that in COVID during COVID. My mother spent over 40 days in the hospital and the worst part about it, and, and she's okay now, she's back at home, but the worst part about it, and the reason why I think a lot of people ultimately stop fighting, is you can't see your loved ones. No one yeah. can come visit you. It's just isolation, and you, you've, my mom told me, she's like, I thought I was going to die. Like, really, the, the brevity of, of someone saying that, and I never thought I was going to get to hug you again. It was, uh, man, it was tough. So I could see how something like that Alexa-type device would be paramount and uh, during these times, especially. Oh yeah. And, and I, and I agree with it. And we ask I mean, we submit it, we, we enclose a comment form to feedback form just to make, you know, to get their thoughts on how valuable it was and overwhelmingly they've been very positive. So very well received. Our main effort though, is a very unique approach to education for the children of not only fallen special ops personnel, but recently we expanded our eligibility to include the children of all Medal of Honor recipients. So, and when I say a unique program is we proactively reach out to the families of our fallen or our Medal of Honor families. In, in the case of a fallen, it's within 60 days of their death. We send them an information packet with a sheet to fill out that is really contact information more than anything else. And once they fill out that sheet, they're in our program. There is no more applications for them to fill out. They don't have to you know, fill out a scholarship application every year and do an essay or anything like that. I mean, they are in our program. And our programs start in preschool. The, uh, we pay for preschool up to 8K per year per kid 
We pay for unlimited tutoring throughout their education from preschool all the way through college graduation. We have focused mentorship programs that help kids identify their passions and their dreams starting in eighth grade and then the path to get there. We have a college preparation course. We pay for all their college visits for them and a guardian. And we fully fund their educational expenses. We, and we don't discriminate. If they, if they decide they wanna do a trade and they wanna to go to a trade school or get a certificate like that, that's great. If they go to an Ivy League school like Harvard or Yale or MIT or you know the whole host of them, that's fine too. We don't ask our kids to go to any other charities for money. Most of our kids do have a VA entitlement, a Veterans Administration entitlement called the Fry Scholarship. And we ask them to use the, and that's a, that really funds in state for four years of college in a public institution. We ask them to use two years of that um, if they have that entitlement, well, again, most do. And then we ask them to keep the, we tell them to keep the second half of that entitlement so later in life they can go back for a master's. But we, wow. we fund that all the way through. We pay for study abroad opportunities. We also provide a stipend for internships. And we have a special needs program that we have, a, we have somewhere under 20 kids that will probably never go to college. And so we have a program that is that addresses their needs specifically. And I am the approval authority for that. And so whatever they need, if they need special tutoring, if they need an inpatient type of or a resident program or some special equipment to help them learn anything like that, uh, we're committed to supporting whatever those needs are at the same level we would with a kid in our traditional uh, in the traditional education programs. So what is, you know, what does all that mean? Well, you know, what's the, what's the impact of that? We call it cradle to career, by the way, starting in that preschool and then the tutoring and the college all the way through their transition to career. Well, in 2020, we had 41 kids graduate high school. 38 went directly on to a four-year college. Two joined the military and one has taken a year off. So I don't know the exact percentage of that, but somewhere north of, you know, 94, 95%, probably 93, 95%, you know, you know, attending college, that's at least 20% above the national average. This last year we had our call, we had 93% of our kids graduate college on time. That's over 30% above the national average. <laughs> that's faster and, than me, that's for sure. What's that? I said it, it took me a lot longer than that. <laughs> well, you know, and I say on time because STEM degrees obviously take a little bit longer. But the fact is, you know, those exceeding those national averages with these kids, I think is evident of the value of this holistic approach to education. And remember, these are kids that have been through a very traumatic event in their life, and they're most likely in a single parent home. So, you know, they certainly could be at risk. Um, but it's that success, I think, is that continuous engagement that our career counselors have, our education counselors have with these families. 
And it starts, like I said, right after the death of their loved one, mm-hmm. this relationship starts and it's, you know, and, and the proof is in those graduation rates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to say, so how do you guys finance this? Well, you know, we're like any other charity and I'm not a professional fundraiser, but we have to raise money and we get money from some corporate folks and a lot of private individuals that believe in what we do. And, you know, if, if anyone out there listening is interested in supporting the foundation, I invite you to go to specialops.org and check. And I'll close with, we're all, you know, we're also very good stewards of what we've been. That's one of our core values is stewardship. If you're familiar with Charity Navigator, a watchdog group that, you know, keeps a close eye and evaluates charities, we've received their highest rating, a four-star rating for the last 15 years, and we're considered a best practice and in the top 1% of all military charities. And so I think we're doing good work and we're on a a tight budget and, and and it's having a meaningful impact, not only on those families that have sacrificed so much for our country, but it's also making the country better, right? It's helping these kids reach their full potential. Absolutely. And to me, it, it's you're going to be hard pressed to find anything else uh, more more satisfying to come to work for every morning than an endeavor like that. Yeah. So thanks for that. I know I went a bit long, but oh, that's, that's okay. Why we're here? It's certainly worthwhile, uh, a justified pursuit, no doubt about that. And uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think so for sure. What's the uh, what is the website if if people did want to check it out? Sure, it's special ops special OPS, specialops.org. All of our financial documents on there, everything you need to know about our programs is on there and our contact information is on there. And people can call me direct. You're not bothering me. Um, I'd be happy to talk to you about the foundation. There's a lot of people that, you know, that if, depending on what your question is, can probably give you a deeper answer, but just check us out. You know, there's a lot of great charities out there. There's a lot of great people doing great work. And this is the work that we're doing. And I appreciate you taking a look. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I know Chisholm had uh, some some questions for you, um, generally speaking, two things that um, we're, we're both passionate. And, and certainly Chisholm of late, he actually just uh, took over or took a role within his HOA and kind of, uh, <laughs> as a, you know, serving whatever right? that's you're serving well you're serving your community to. and it's not on the same level as serving in the military serving your country but service and leadership are things that i think we both emphasize as men um here in in 2021 and in general it, se- it seems to me like there's a, a severe lack of it sometimes <laughs> uh, certainly on, on the leadership side of things absolutely uh, but i'm gonna let chisholm uh go through a couple questions he has sure. for you at this point Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Cable. Uh, General, thank you for uh, that. That I, I you didn't take, didn't go over or take up too much time. I, I letting letting you really tell us about the Special Ops Warrior Foundation was uh, my, you know, primary objective here. It's a uh, it's, it's an amazing organization, and and like you pointed out, the proof is in the pudding on those statistics. Yeah. Um. It's it's just a a really cool thing to hear the success you had mentioned on that, uh, on the, the black rifle guys podcast. Um, the actual name of the podcast is blanking on me for a second. Yeah, free range, American, free range, American. Thank you. I love that name. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the importance, uh, I, I guess you guys had, uh, you know, looked at some studies, the importance of actual uh, pre-K, you know, getting that, yep. getting that foundation laid that early, you know, the age of say four or five for some of these kids where, you know, they come into the program at that age. Um, I guess I, I have a couple more things I wanted to talk about on that front. Uh, if you don't sure. mind, and then we can go into sort of bigger picture conversations. But uh, if you could just talk a little bit to, uh, I, I guess, that study and, and the, mm-hmm. you know, sort of some more about the science and philosophy behind that, that uh, cradle to uh, career approach. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you. When I signed on as the, uh, as the CEO of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation, you know, you're the new guy, you're asking questions, you're, you know, you're looking at things with a fresh eye. And I was skeptical of, of the, of the uh, return on investment for paying for preschool. At the time, we were paying 5K per year. We just recently raised it to eight, and, or about a year ago, I guess. And my education counselors set me straight in short order and showed me that the investment in a quality preschool significantly increases a child's chances of pursuing a post-secondary education. And, and it's really re- oriented around reading. This isn't about uh, daycare, you know, it's not childcare. It's about reading and giving them a leg up as they go forward. Uh, similarly with tutoring. So tutoring can take a very poor performing student and bring him certainly or right around to the middle of the pack which is good, but it'll also take a middle of the pack student and put them up at the top of their peer group. And our whole goal, our number one priority in the foundation is student success. We have a strategic plan and that is our number one priority, student success. And our, and again, I don't take any credit for this architecture, this cradle to career architecture. I fell in on it when I took over, but I completely believe in it. And I, I have to, you know, my hat's off to our education counselors that make this happen for these families every day. But when you invest, you know, starting so early in their life, especially with these kids that have been through so much, you know, you, you invest early, but you, you have your eye on that post-secondary education. And we have found that, that ha- this has the most impact and it's very unique. And I'm not saying that other people shouldn't, couldn't do it. They certainly can, but this is the way we do it. And, and it, and it really does pay a lot of dividends and, and it's through those graduation rates. And if you go to our website, you'll see it. We just, we've had 401 kids graduate from college. We just had our 401st kid the other day graduate. And, you know, we have, you know, another committed to funding another 965 or so. So this long-term view and this holistic view of education and early investment, I think is, is, is really the secret sauce. And I would add that it's also the personal relationship that our education counselors have with each and every family. It really is very personal for us. And, and our approach is tailored to each family, to meet each family's need, whether that's a traditional family, a special needs family, a Medal of Honor family, a family of a fallen special ops pers- uh, operator or type, um, you know, we approach each family uniquely. And, 
and, uh, you know, and focus on their needs. And to me, that really uh, defines us as an organization. And that's what I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of that personal caring approach that we take unique to each family. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that it has to have a lot to do with the success of the program too. I mean, as you just outlined, right, that um, somebody has to support this. And it, it kind of leads me uh, into the, the direction we wanted to go from here, which is, uh, you know, thanks for you know sharing the website and, and giving everybody an idea of how to, you know, contribute financially. But uh, obviously not everybody is in a position to do that, but they may have it on their heart to uh, take part in, in something like this in another way. What what sort of volunteer opportunities may be available with the foundation? You know, if any, I guess, is there sort of a geographic footprint related to that? And, you know, how do you go about recruiting those folks? I mean, obviously, I'm sure those people are actually, you know, trained, um, you know, trained, I guess, like counsel, education counselors and, you know, people with yeah. that sort of background. But, you know, is there ways that somebody out there could contribute besides uh, just sending money? Well, yeah, certainly. If they go to our website, there's an events page. If you see an event that is in your area and you want to volunteer to support that event, that would be great. Most of our events are, are what we call third-party events. They're ran by somebody else. Sure. Now, we support them. Um, you know, we support those events, but, but they're ran by somebody else. But there's certainly volunteering opportunities there. If you're someone that has, is part of a major corporation or a company that has college internship programs, you know, we, those are another opportunity for us. We have about 40, between 40 and 50 kids in college that join college every year, a total of about 160 to 180 kids in college at any given time. That number is creeping up every year. So if you think about it, maybe half of those kids, you know, say 180, if we're going with 160, are available, are probably in the window for an internship. Um, if, the, if, if you're part of a company that, that wants to participate in internship programs, certainly reach out to us. We have, uh, we have one of our staff, Denise Anderson, that's her focus area is internships. And uh, we, you know, we'd be certainly grateful for any help in that area. Hmm. So, so yeah, those are a couple of opportunities to volunteer other than financial. And, and I get it. I mean, not everybody can give, and I understand that you've got to take care of your family first and your business and all those kind of things. And if you can't give, I completely understand. Kind of makes uh, serving on the Ducks, Dallas Ducks Unlimited, Unlimited Committee seem kind of insignificant <laughs> i wouldn't say that it's a, uh, it, takes, it takes a lot of people doing a lot of great things to make this country what it is uh, uh, yeah absolutely uh protecting waterfowl is important too buddy yeah um again uh, thanks for, for for all of that great information general and you know there, there may be people out there who are just as happy to you know, who would like to cut a check and uh, find a way to serve right getting kind of back to that, that concept concept of service one, one thing i took away from the uh, free range American episode that you did. And then we will talk a little bit more about that service concept is you had said in there at one point, um, you know, that the special ops warrior foundation supports uh, the families of all special ops personnel, not just special operators. I was wondering That's if you right. could just give everybody a quick overview of, 
uh, kind of that distinction? Because I think I have it in, I think I have an idea of, of what, what you're getting at there, but maybe give everybody, I think everybody knows about SEALs and Green Berets and, uh, you know, Airborne Rangers. And, you know, now we know about the 160th. Um, but, you know, what, what is it really, what does it mean when you say that, that the personnel in a broader context and sort of the support? Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, most of our, most of the battles being fought these days, it's the special ops guys really kind of driving the bus, right? Whether those are covert operations or, uh, you know, like the Battle of Ramadi or anything like that, right? Yeah, they're, you know, clear, I'd, I would say it, I'd say it, it's, this is an exact percentage, but somewhere over the last several years, somewhere around 75% of the combat casualties the U.S. has experienced for the last few years have been special ops and special yep. ops is 2% between two and 3% of the total military force. So that gives you an idea of the critical role they're playing. Um, yeah. So you're right. You, you, you articulated it perfectly. When people think of special ops, you know, they're thinking of a, uh, a Navy seal, uh, a, a green beret and a ranger, a Marine special operations command raider, a 160th aviator, an Air Force Special Ops Command aviator. And the, you know, and that's what people in their mind's eye, I suspect, when they think special ops, you know, that's what they, they think about. But the fact is, um, the op, what we call operators, and all of those folks that I listed off just there, what we would in the special ops community refer to as operators, are, are only a fraction of the special ops population. Intelligence, logistics, transportation, all the, all the backside, what we would term as backside support for special ops, it takes a whole team. I can tell you as a special ops aviator that I wouldn't have been able to launch one aircraft on a combat mission without a whole host of maintenance people that keep our aircraft in the fight every day, whether it's sheet metal, airframe repair, avionics, whatever, engines, all of that stuff. And so the Special Ops Warrior Foundation doesn't treat anybody on that collective team of special ops any different. If you're wounded or fallen or injured or ill and you're in the special ops world, we're going to take care of you. We just had a, a petty officer assigned here at McDill give you an example. He was driving home from work. He was with a special ops unit here. He was a personnel person, a personnelman. He's driving, he's driving down a road and somebody crosses a median and he's in a head-on collision, no fault of his mm -hmm. own. He was in the hospital from August through December and passed away in December. He's never been on, I, I, you know, I, I suspect he's never been on a target, never even seen one up close and personal but his family is completely covered. His three kids and his wife's in the service in the Navy. They're covered by us. Now, he, he passed away in December. His kids are in our program until they graduate. Like we also, if you are a, in what we call the general purpose forces, if you're a regular infantryman in the 101st or the 82nd or a Marine or an Airman, and you are working for special ops, what we call there's a command relationship there, and something happens to you, you're in our program too. I was involved, um, I was in a mission 
in uh, Iraq where we had an F-16 pilot, Troy Gilbert, that was killed providing close air support to a mission that we were on. And, um, and Troy Gilbert left behind five kids. Wow. And those kids are all part of our program. And he, he was not a special ops. He was an F-16 pilot. And there's many other, that's just one. There's many other cases of folks that were working in support of special ops. There was Major Brent Taylor. He was in the Utah National Guard. You may have heard of this in, I think, 2019 or 2018. He was deployed to Afghanistan. He was the mayor of North Ogden, Utah. He was deployed to Afghanistan working for special ops training Afghans. And it was an insider attack. An Afghan pulled out a pistol and shot and killed him. And he left behind, you know, a whole host of kids and, and, a, and a, stay, a stay at home mom. They're all in our program. So we believe in the whole team concept and that, you know, no one's life is more valuable or less valuable than anyone else's in our community. And that's the way we approach it. Yep. That's awesome. Um, Again, thanks, thanks for sharing all that, uh, you know, adding some more color, I think, uh, particularly there to, you know, what it takes to execute these missions and, uh, you know, take, take the battle to the enemy in this, in, you know, in our modern context. Um, I think, like we said, I think a lot of people think in terms of, you know, the SEAL team being, what I think, six or eight guys, right? And, and they don't realize that, um, as you pointed out, uh, those folks couldn't do their jobs without a whole bunch of men and women uh, providing all sorts of support and cover. So, um, man, it's just a, it's an, it's an incredible, uh, incredible mission, incredible foundation. Um, like I said, it leads me to this idea of service. Um, mm -hmm. Cable mentioned, you know, he's, he's got his uh, charitable work, uh, all of which is important, important. We're both uh, passionate outdoorsmen. Um, which I know that is, uh, a lot of our veterans are as well. Uh, and so there's a huge overlap between the outdoors community and, and those guys. And um, yeah, I'm serving on our HOA, not particularly glorious or certainly not hazardous. Oh, it, it may be more hazardous than I realized <laughs> I'm <Maybe>. finding, <laughs> but um, I'm also trying to do a lot um, in, you know, in our church uh, here in, in the Texas Hill country area. We moved here just less than three years ago and, um, you know, just trying to step up and find opportunities to, to serve and, and lead or, and or follow. But, um, you know, for a man who spent 40, nearly 41 years uh, in the military, you know, starting out as a 17 year old Marine who, as you said, uh, really needed a kick in the butt. Um, I guess how what, what was your view at the time? I mean, obviously you were serving your country from that day uh, and for the next 41 years. And I would say. To, to date uh, mm -hmm. through the through the foundation, but um, I have a hunch that your idea of service maybe evolved over that. So I guess my question is kind of what did you look? How did you look at the concept of service when you signed up originally as a Marine, um, and, and how did that evolve through your career? And then you know, and maybe how has it evolved since uh, your retirement and taken in uh, taken on this role with the with the foundation? That's a great question that no one has asked me before and one that I have thought about a lot. And um, so, and I'm just gonna talk in my particular case, yes, right? Sir. It's different for every person. Absolutely. I joined the military for what I would consider purely selfish reasons. I, I didn't join to serve a, a greater good. 
I, I just didn't. I, I joined because this was probably the best option I had not to end up in jail. So, right. you know, I, I went for myself and that's why I went in. And I would say, even when I went into special operations, I went in for myself. I wanted to be part of the best. I wanted to fly with the best. I wanted to be part of history, but that was all about me. Over time, and probably a, a big influence on that was the leadership opportunities that I had along the way, starting at the very low levels and obviously con continuing up as a general officer. It, I learned early on and grew up, the appreciation just grew throughout my career that it's not about me, that it's about serving a greater good. And, and, and I also got an appreciation for how much better I felt for being part of a bigger team, how much, how much personal satisfaction that I got from helping others. And, and, and a lot of that was through the leadership positions I was in. And so, you know, my concept of service went really from self to the greater good. And, and, and I guess it all comes back down to that, you know, it's benefited me as a person, made me a better father, a better husband, a better person, a better soldier, and now a better leader of the Special Ops Warrior Foundation as a result of that of seeing that the service and sacrifice of other people of working as part of a team and uh, serving a greater good. Most of which people will never know and that that's not important. But what's important is the experience and being part of something greater than self. And so I didn't start out that way, but that's where I'm at today. And uh, that I wanna be part of uh, something bigger than myself. Listen, I mean, working in a nonprofit, I mean, they don't call it a nonprofit for any other reason than it's nonprofit. So you're not going to, you know, I'm not dialing in from this lavish mansion in <laughs> South Tampa, you know, um, but that's okay with me because the intangible benefits of serving both in uniform and now with this foundation far outweigh any monetary reward I could find somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, your passion yeah, you know, is, is very evident and, and, and just to get up and, and I know it's, well, it is work. I mean, it's right now it's your life's work, but it hardly seems like, uh, that compares to the satisfaction that you're getting and that's okay. That doesn't, you know, personal satisfaction out of doing something that betters other people, I think is a, a wonderful byproduct. Well, certainly has been for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, sometimes people with a, maybe a pessimistic or kind of a negative worldview might say things like, you know, a charitable donation. Oh, they're just doing that to make themselves feel good. And it's like, you know, I guess that's a chicken or the egg debate. Right. But if it's benefiting others and, and it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and, uh, and it makes you sleep well at night, I, I don't, you know, it just seems like a, a silly criticism, I guess. But um, I, I find it, you know, you made the point, General, that uh, by investing in these in these kids, you know, you're you're still serving the country by just bettering our population. Right. Getting, uh, you know, getting a over you know, almost a thousand kids 
uh, in many instances, all the way to, you know, graduate level degrees. So it's, uh, you know, you're strengthening the workforce and, you know, you're, so you're, you're helping tremendously on an individual level, but also again, you know, continuing to, to serve the country. It's, um, it, that, that, you know, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I was just going to throw in there, you know, the guy saying, well, you're saying that, no, it's personal for me. You know, yeah. my middle son who is in college right now, he's texting with me earlier today. He's getting ready to graduate. His name is Mitchell Walcott Puttmacher. His middle name, you're thinking Walcott. Well, his, he's named after Clifton P. Walcott, who was killed during combat operations in Somalia in 1993, you know, captured in the movie Black Hawk Down. Mm. And that's my namesake for my middle son. I flew with Cliff in Panama. I flew with Cliff's off Cliff's wing in Desert Storm when we were going against Scuds being shot into Israel. And uh, so it's personal with me. My VP, the vice president of the foundation is a retired special forces colonel. And between us, we know a lot of those people, a lot of those kids or the parents of those kids on our walls, the pictures on our walls. So Mm -hmm. trust me, it's personal. Yeah. No, I follow, I follow a bunch of guys uh, who have, you know, gotten out of the military and, um, you know, like, like Jocko Willink, uh, those kind of guys, the guys from Black Rifle and, you know, uh, my Instagram feed seems to be um, not quite daily, but it's almost weekly where uh, those guys are, you know, posting this annual memorial to, to one of their fallen brothers. And yeah, yeah. It's, I'm going on Jocko's podcast in May, Awesome, by the way. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a great conversation. Uh, that guy, <laughs> both of y'all are, are certainly men to, uh, to look up to. Um, and, I, you know, Cable and I talk about this a lot, but uh, I, I love the fact that you guys are coming out of military services and service and finding ways to impact society, impact culture by sharing your stories and sharing your understanding of leadership. Um, I, I also wanted to just throw out there, you know, your, 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 your view at 17 sounds like the view of every 17 year old that I knew, including myself. Right. Um, I've got a, my, my best friend growing up. Yeah. My best friend growing up joined the Marine Corps and, you know, all he wanted to be was a recon Marine, um, you know, kicking ass on the front lines. And it, you know, it it wasn't, he didn't talk much about service, but fast forward to we're 40 now. And um, all he thinks about is uh, being a better, husband, father, member of his community, all the things that you just outlined. Right. And, and he didn't, you know, he did his four years and then uh, went on to college and all that. But um, I think, I think that's a lot of that's a natural just maturation of us. Right. That um, I, it's something that really became clear to me having kids. I've got four daughters and a few years ago it really hit me that um, the way to really take a major step as, as, a, as their dad was to realize this isn't about me at all anymore. Yeah. Um, it's all about them. And, and it has to be in part because in their worlds, it's all about them, right? Like it, it, right. I realized how selfish I was as a kid. And that some of the things that drive me nuts and frustrate me as a dad is yeah. them showing that same type of, you know, childish uh, worldview. And, it, and it, you know, it's understandable. They can't really, care for themselves or anything like that they, they, their world sort of the world revolves around them at that age and once you realize that and accept it it really helps you um i guess guide that to some extent right 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have three sons. Uh, my hat's off to you. Talk about selfless service. <laughs> oh my God. Thanks. Um, uh, yeah. You know, my oldest son is getting ready to get married. He's uh, just graduating from NC state uh, with his graduate degree and, and he's getting ready to get married. It's, it's been fun watching him or enlightening, watching him make that, that journey from, you know, being that immature self-absorbed young man to, oh, wow, now I get it. You know, I get why you did X, Y, and Z and why you were so hard on us. And, you know, so that day's coming for you. I don't know how old your kids are, but the older they get, the more, the more it seems to me that they appreciate what you've done for them. Yeah. Mine range from four to 12. And, um, I could say my 12 year old, you know, girls are so different in a lot of ways. Um, a little bit more intuitive and empathic. It sounds like not having any boys, <laughs> but from, from what I gather, um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, the, just last night I was getting on my 12 year old cause she was arguing over a stuffed animal with her four-year-old sister. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> you know, you're almost a teenager. She stands eye to eye with my wife already, but, um, yeah. So I think this is a great point to any, and you sort of touched on it as you talked through how your, your understanding of service evolved as your role as a leader evolved. But, uh, we definitely wanted to touch on leadership while we still had you. Um, you know, I heard you mention, and I, I completely agree. You know, I, I told you before the call that I was, I was raised by, uh, a bunch of men who had served in the military and, um, they don't make leaders, uh, like you guys in, uh, you know, high schools and, and universities across the country. Um, I think, I think some leadership, uh, comes as, as a, as a gift or a talent. Um, but like any gift or talent, you have to hone it and work on it to make it a skill. And then other people maybe weren't born with it, but, um, you know, through circumstances or, uh, you know, just, just life's progression, they find themselves in, in having that opportunity or they seek it. Um, Specifically, I'd like to talk a little bit about how, you know, and you touched on this in that, that, uh, that podcast, the, the leadership skills you learned in the military translate and, and in some ways don't translate uh, over into your civilian career that you're, that you're in now. Um, so I had, there was an example, you, you had mentioned, um, speaking of support personnel, that uh, one of the things you did uh, regularly you know, in one of your, one of your leadership positions was to make sure to get around. I think you said you, you kept about two hours a week on your standing on your schedule to get around and talk to guys uh, and gals, uh, you know, around the base that were in those support functions, mechanics, maintenance uh, type folks, not necessarily the pilots who were your peers um, where you were kind of speaking the same language and had that, you know, kind of mutual understanding, but, you know, getting around to those folks and, and making sure that they saw you, uh, knew you and then asking them at times, you know, what, what could I do for you guys that, um, would make your jobs easier and make this, you know, this operation more efficient. And, um, I guess one, one young guy and forgive me for not knowing all of y'all's terminology, but, um, I guess he, he was, he had a pretty high score on your PT testing program and wanted to know why he still had to get up in the morning and run a mile, uh, at a nine minute pace, I guess with the, you know, with the rest of the crew uh, when it wasn't helping him necessarily get in any better shape or helping him do his job. Um, and so you basically charge forward and, and help change that, I guess, if you could, so I don't sit here and tell your story, Yeah, no <laughs> kind of tell that story. And, and maybe if you had an, another example or two of that, of 
changing longstanding policies. Um, I, you know, I find I, I work for uh, a large uh, corporation, a, a Fortune 200 level corporation, and I can say that uh, it has its benefits. But one of the drawbacks of any really big company is they start to be they start to they start to behave or operate more like a bureaucracy, I think, yeah. than sometimes a for-profit company. And you end up with all these institutional gates and and hurdles that you you know if you really want to be entrepreneurial and try to drive things forward, you have to figure out how to get through or around. And then sometimes you just can't. Um, so on one side of the coin, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of those instances where you were able to knock some walls down, um, you know, in, in a structure like the U S military. And then on the flip side, uh, when you, when you hit a wall that you can't tear down, even when you totally agree with the idea that it needs to be, but for whatever reason, the, the power structure says it has to stay this way, messaging that back down to, you know, the quote, you know, to your troops, right. Um, as to why, you know, I know this doesn't sound like it makes sense, but here's how it is and how we have to move forward. That's just the way it seems like it always is in the military, right? It, like when you're given a mission that doesn't make sense and, and all, all of this is just from reading books and watching romanticized movies about special ops. Right. But uh, yeah. it seems like that there's probably a lot of truth to that. Oh, there is. I mean, I think, you know, there's an old saying, I don't I guess I don't know how old it is, but where you sit is where you stand on an issue. I, I will tell you that I always thought I was much smarter than my boss until I moved <laughs> up and sat in his chair right. <laughs> and saw things from his perspective. And the guy that I replace is a regimental commander, Kevin Mangum, retired as a three-star, a great officer I'm you know, close contact with. I shared that with him when I was, I was his subordinate commander. And then I moved up and replaced him. And I said, wow, this is sort of like we talked about when your kids sort of their eyes open, you know, about all you've done for them. It was a similar though, probably not as dramatic example of that. So, you know, a couple of things, I think I'll share that story about uh, what happened with that physical fitness uh, example that you use. Cause it was, you know, it was like any other day for me, but it turned out, and I didn't even really understand the significance of it until years later, but, or months later, I guess, but I did, I, you know, and I, there was a warrant officer that I flew with Carl Meyer, who's a dear friend of mine and his wife, Cindy, who said, you know, he, and so I don't take complete credit for this. He said, you ought to share or spend more time talking to those junior troops and not, what the leaders want to show you, you know? And so I made a point, I listened to him and we've served together for a long time and I respect him then and now greatly. And so I took his advice. So I blocked two hours on my calendar every week and I just walked around and I never, I never made it an inspection. I never chewed anybody out. I never said, you know, why is your hair too long? You know, why isn't your, aren't your boots shine? Nothing like that. Because I knew that once I did that, that it would change the whole dynamic of my business. Sure. I didn't want my visits to be threatening. I just, I just wanted to know what was going on. So, and I also, like you had stated, I fly all the time, you know? And so I'm with pilots just because we're, you know, it's part of what I do and our mission more frequently. So I wanted to focus that time, not all of it, but the majority of that time on folks that were critical to the mission 
but that I don't see a lot. And uh, that particular example that you were citing that I talked about on Free Range American was the guys in my engine shop. And, you know, a little backdrop. There's time, this was 2000, or late 2008, fall of 2008, I guess, when this happened. And we were in the thick of the fight. This is right after the surge in Iraq. I mean, we were barely keeping our aircraft in the air. I mean, they come back from combat damaged and broken and we put them into maintenance and it was a complete team effort to get them back out and back onto the flight line and back into the fight. And it was, I mean, it was, you know, very close to not being able to meet the operational requirements downrange and it took the whole team. But I recognize that if you're a 17, 18 year old kid that's coming to work every day, you know, to, to, to inspect the, in, the compressor section of an engine, you probably don't have a good understanding or appreciation of how important you really are. And so that, you know, that's what I wanted to get is I wanted to be able to, one, deal with any issues or help with any issues that I could that they were experiencing, but also to make sure they knew that they had a voice and how important they were to the success of the entire team, of the nation, if you extend that. And so this particular day I was in the engine shop and they, you know, we pull the, at scheduled maintenance, a number of flight hours, we pull the engines off and they do a, they do internal inspections with bore scopes and all those kind of things. And I called all these kids together that were in the room, probably, I don't know, 25, 30 of them working on engines. And I, you know, one, I always beat them up on education off to the education, go to school, go to school, go to school. And as I told you earlier, that was the, if I had to cite one particular thing I did early in my life, after I joined the military, my military career that defined my success or enabled my success, it was education. And so I've been pushing that ever since. And so I'm always, I'm always harping on that. And, but I asked him, I said, Hey, what, you know, these kids, what can I do to make things better for you here? And this kid raises his hand. He says, I score a 300, which is the max score on the Army physical fitness test. And he said, but I still got to get up and run, you know, this slow pace run and it doesn't increase my fitness level. And, you know, I would rather go do my own physical fitness, you know, and, and run faster and farther and do whatever it is to increase his fitness than, you know, being tied to the, a slower pace, you know, more of the general population of that unit. Mm-hmm. And we call, and the army, they have a term for it. It's called the incentive uh, physical fitness program or PT program. And this is like an 18 year old kid. Yeah. And was, I think his uh, platoon sergeant was having an aneurysm when I was, when he was talking to me, you know, like, <laughs> I can't believe you're talking to the Colonel like that. And I'm like, Hey, settle down, Sergeant. You know, I'm, I, I got this, you know, well, he has a point I'm 40 and a nine minute mile is, is, is not very difficult. So, you know, I'm thinking about an 18 year old kid being very bored with that, uh, and finding it a huge waste of his time. <laughs> yeah. He's probably looking at a six minute mile. Now I will tell you, Mr. 40 year old, when you get to 60, it's very <laughs> impressive. So, um, the, uh, so anyway, he, he asked me that and I said, you know, that's a good question. Let me go, let me go research that and I'll get back to you. And I walked back to my office. I sent out an email to all of my company first sergeants. I had six of them. And I said, do you have an incentive 
physical fitness program at the company level. If you do send me your, you know, an ex a policy letter or whatever you have on it. If you don't tell me why, why we don't, why we shouldn't have one. And five of them of the six first sergeants came back right away and said, we don't have one, but we should. And keep in mind, we're in combat constantly. So, you know, we're those kind of housekeeping things tend to get a lower yeah. priority than, than getting folks, you know, uh, in and out of combat safely. So that was our focus. So I didn't, I don't want to throw any shade on the leadership at the time because they were doing great work. And, uh, and then one came back and he's like, I don't think people should, I think they should run with us no matter what. And, you know, of course I didn't agree with him. So I, uh, I, I got with my Sergeant Major. We, he wrote out an incentive PT program that afternoon. I signed it. I walked right back down the flight line to that engine shop and I handed it to the kid in front of his peers. And I said, Hey, I coined them too, right? We give coins for excellence kind of thing, a command coin. And I said, thanks for bringing that up. Here is the new policy, incentive PT policy, and you get the credit for it. And I handed him a copy of the policy letter. And I mean, he, I don't, he was almost speechless. And, and, uh, but I heard about that little interaction for the rest of my time in command, you know, a few months later, I was hopping on a C-17 heading over to Iraq for a combat rotation. And, you know, it's my SOP was I, you know, as soon as the plane takes off, I roll my sleeping bag out on the floor underneath one of the helicopters and pass out because, you know, and then wake up hopefully when we're somewhere over Europe or something. And uh, as I was crawling in my sleeping bag, this sergeant came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, sir, I just want you to know that incentive PT program, that specialist, and I don't even remember his name, I'm ashamed to say, uh, recommended to you. He said, he still crows about that to this day. And I said, he should, he changed regimental, he changed, maybe it was battalion policy at the time, it was battalion policy. I said, he should. You know, he brought up a problem, we fixed the problem, but we wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for him. So. You know, the point here is, is that you don't learn about those kind of issues if you sit in your office and you lead through email. Yep. You got to walk the line and you, and, and you've got to be thoughtful about how you engage with people. You know, you've got to be willing to take, hear things that you don't want to hear. You've got to be willing, you've got to be humble and, 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 you know, and, and, reinforce to the folks that you're visiting with and meeting with and, and talking to that they have a voice and that they're a valued member of the team. That's what I wanted to do. And by, for me, you know, we completed all of our missions. Uh, we uh, the 160th to this day remains the most capable aviation unit on the planet. I know some people out there may have different opinions, but that's mine. And, uh, but what I remember about commanding that unit was not flying to the X in the middle of the night with a bunch of tracers. I do remember some of those, but what means the most to me was those little interactions like I had with that kid in the engine shop and countless others where they helped me fulfill my responsibility to make the unit better. And uh, to me, when you, you should always leave your foxhole better than you found it. 
man, I, I like that that last note. I, I take that view, try to pass it on to my kids in uh, every regard. Um, you know, we, we live here in the hill country and have the have a number of beautiful rivers nearby. And one of the things we always do when we go to the river for Saturday is I make them pick up trash. Good uh, for you. You know, we have our own little lunch and we pick that sort of stuff up but then i say let's pick up a few extra pieces of trash just to try to leave it better than we found it and there's so many things there general that i do think parallel perfectly to uh you know business leadership or uh you know community service leadership but um you talked about you talked about how important it is to get you know kind of operations level you know personnel uh to see the big picture um, not only that, but then to be engaged in it and enrolled in it. Right. I, I feel like I definitely, in March of last year, I was, I was promoted to direct, uh, the, the business unit I'm with, I'm, I'm in and it's, I got roughly 60 people and 40 or so pieces of big equipment that we deploy across the country. And, um, it's been tough during COVID, you know, we had complete travel, non-essential travel shutdown for months and months and months. And, um, you know, and then right when it looked like it was going to open back up, it kind of locked down again late last fall. And I'm, I'm this month, I'm going to get back. Uh, I don't, I don't live where our, our kind of headquarters are, but, uh, I know I need to get back to getting over to the shop, talking to those guys, uh, face to face. Um, because I definitely find that, you know, that it's so easy for them to just have no real clue or picture of, of the bigger initiative, right? Those guys in particular, the guys in my maintenance shop, they're, they're working on equipment every day in and out, in and out, in and out. And they don't always know where it's going, what it's doing, you know, and, and what, you know, our business development group's trying to do to make sure that we keep sending stuff somewhere to make money, to keep everybody employed. So, you know, tying everybody into the, the business operation is important. And then, you know, I, I try to do that too. Just ask for feedback, you know, without sounding like, Hey, I'm from corporate and I'm here to help. Right. But what, what kind of things could really, because I, I, there's a fine line there between, like you said, earnestly trying to to get you know useful feedback from your team and and kind of coming off like uh, like that's a box to check, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, the I'm, I'm looking at the notes I made here while we were talking. Um, another thing you mentioned was you know priorities. The priorities of, of, of your unit, your battalion of a, of a, of a you know, of a business mm-hmm. there, there are always like anything else in life, right? There, there's always this bandwidth stretch from, you know, what the kind of core mission is that often means that you really don't have anybody or don't have the time you know available to try to look below those priorities to find things that could be fixed that, you know, may, may not have a direct impact on, on the, the, the mission that's, that's measurable or on profitability that's necessarily measurable, but could be a huge thing for morale. Like to me, that PT program change, um, you know, was something that a bunch of those guys who found that nine minute pace, just, to, you know, just sort of unnecessary. It had to have been a boost for their morale. It was definitely a boost for that one young man to know that, you know, as you say, he, he helped change the, you know, change policy at a battalion level. Um, I just, I see so much parallel in all that to, uh, like I said, any, any leadership role in, in any, in any group of people really. But, um, the, if you've got an example of, of maybe one where, 
where, you know, you, you thought somebody maybe had a good idea and, and had to uh, break the news, unfortunately, that you really couldn't get something done. I, I'd love to hear that. And then there was something else I'll go ahead and throw out there that I heard you say in that podcast that I really liked, which was because I, one thing I'm trying to do across the board all the time is to empower people to step into uh, a bigger role. Right. And, and, you know, people thrive on responsibility. I do believe that, um, you know, maybe not everybody, but, but I think most people as you grow up, yeah, I think most people want to take on more and more responsibility over time. And that means as a leader delegating, um, or, you know, delegating just decision-making authority, maybe not even a specific task. Right. And a lot of people in leadership positions shy away from that and they tend to hoard responsibility for fear of, uh, something getting broke, right. Something getting screwed up. And so you, you had this quote where you said, empowering people means sometimes you have to take an ass chewing. And I loved that man, because I, um, I'm willing to, I'm willing to have to run cover for somebody who in good faith was trying to do the right thing. Uh, and I, and I kind of always have been, even before I had like a formal leadership role. Um, some of it may be arrogance thinking that, um, <laughs> my head won't be the one that gets chopped off. But, um, I guess if you could, if you could maybe come up with an example of where you had to break the bad news to, to the troops that, you know, you weren't able to get a kind of maybe a dumb policy change, but then, speak a little bit more about that notion that uh, empowering people turning the reins over means that you have to be willing to take some flack. Yeah, I think, you know, um, thanks for that question. So I'll start with the latter one first, you know, about empowerment. Um, uh, you know, I believe that leadership is a learned skill and I would tell you that uh, I'm still learning and uh and I learn almost every day and I screw something up almost every day. Um, <clears throat> that being said, it still remains, you know, the most, one of the most satisfying things I've done in my life. And uh, I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of it. I, I think, you know, when you trust people and you empower them, like I said, you know, that, that can entail, that can mean an ass chewing for you. And, and, and at some point it will, but it also, I think means an increase in productivity. You know, you've got to put lines in the road. You can't take that to extreme. You know, you're cleared for where, go do whatever you want. I mean, you have shareholders, you have, you know, the company's goals, their profit, uh, you know, their business objectives, all those things you're accountable for. So I guess I would use the term disciplined execution. You know, let people, you know, listen to them. And, once, once your subordinate leaders and your rank and file understand that you, you do trust them and that you do, um, you know, uh, value their opinion, you know, they're going to, um, they're going to, they're going to respond to that and they're going to, they're going to screw stuff up and that's part of it. And that's okay. It's okay when they screw stuff up, you know, and I think especially if you recognize where they screwing something up because they wanted to do the right thing and they just didn't know how to get there. So then you, you know, you review what happened. You, you don't really go after who did something wrong, but what went wrong and how we can. Yeah. So 
but ultimately your organization, you're going to have more buy-in. How many times has somebody said, Hey, you're going to do it this way. And you, you know, it's your boss and your livelihood depends on it. And you shake your head north, south, and you say, okay. And then he turns his back or her back. And you're like, mm, yep, nope, I ain't doing that. Um, or you slow roll it to the best of your ability. Um, Cause you don't believe in it. So getting that buy-in, which I think a lot of it comes through empowerment is important um, to the product, ultimate productivity of your organization regarding your, Regarding that, you know, how do you break the bad news to um, to someone that you can't implement their idea? Um, and that, by the way, is my dog in the background choking somewhere. Um, uh, <clears throat> not me, so I'm still with you. Um, Good. <laughs> but the, I think, rather than give you a specific example, I'll go back to that trust. Because ultimately, you're going to have to, you, you, this isn't T-ball. Everybody doesn't get a trophy, right? And sometimes people have a great idea, but when you take it up the chain, it just doesn't make sense. Resource constrained, whatever, you know. Um, but I think people want to be heard. And if you listen to their ideas and you, you know, and, and I'm very candid back to, well, why, I can't do that. that that'll cost a million dollars per tail, of each tail number of an aircraft to put that modification in. It's, it's, an, it's too expensive. I can't do it. Um, if they trust you that you're listening and that you value their opinion, I think that goes a long way to soothing any hurt feelings. Not 100%, but I'd give it in the 90%. So I think that trust, like, okay, hey, Huttmacher listened to me. I don't really like his uh, ultimate decision. I think we should have done this. It makes sense for X, Y, and Z, but at least he listened. And I still think you don't lose that buy-in and that, you know, um, that trust if that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that sounds spot on general. I think shooting people straight is kind of the, the gist of that, right? Just absolutely. Just be honest. Don't ever try to hide the ball or, kind of BS your way through something just again that kind of goes back to the point you made about how to uh you know keep that you know you, you your ops level guys and, and, and ladies informed right because it, it lets them see the field and see the the big picture of the strategy so um exactly and that you know that walk arounds that I talked to we talked about earlier you know that was part of my message hey here's what's going on here's why we're doing this this yeah. is why what you're doing is important here's the bigger picture, here's where we're trying to get, and then giving them the opportunity to ask questions, I think also in, adds to them understanding, you know, the criticality of their contributions to the greater good. Hmm. Well, General, as we're wrapping things up here, you've been very generous with your time, and we appreciate that. Uh, I had a couple questions that are uh, just random things that I wanted to know about combat and sure. you know, was there ever a time where you had this moment where you're like, man, my, my kids almost just went into the uh, special operations warrior foundation. Oh yeah. <laughs> More than a couple. And if there's no statute of limitations on one or two of those, maybe you could uh, to talk about a few of those. Sure. Those hair, those I'll hair tell hair. you one that uh, looms large still to this day. Um, I was, um, 
so we were we were over in Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm. Desert it was still Operation Desert Shield because we hadn't we hadn't attacked Iraq yet to push them back out of Kuwait. But we were we were in country and we were doing some rehearsal missions before we went across. And my mission was to go after the scuds being um, fired into Israel. And so we were out um, rehearsing one of those missions, doing some shooting and things like that. And we had just landed out in the middle of the desert to drop a couple guys off that were riding in the back. And we were taken off and it was really dark. I mean, that's one thing about flying in that desert in Iraq out in the Western part for those that have served over there. I mean, it is dark out there. Um, not a lot of ambient light, even our night vision goggles. We really were at the edge of our capabilities, especially back then. So we were taken off and I had my head down in the cockpit. I wasn't on the controls. It's two pilots up front. The other pilot was flying, but I had my head down looking at a, uh, one of our navigation computers, trying to enter some data. And the crew chief yelled out to me, or yelled out over the intercom, one of our guys in the back, he said, check altitude. And I looked under my night vision goggles at uh, my FLIR screen, my forward looking infrared radar screen that was right in front of me. And on the left side of it, we have a, a readout uh, called our radar altimeter for the aviators out there will know what that is. And it reads our absolute altitude over the ground. And it said zero. So we were impacting the ground when I looked up. So I reached over with one hand and I just pulled up on the uh, collective, the power button or the power lever for a helicopter. And we bounced off the desert floor in a cloud of dust, climbed back up into the air. I wasn't even flying the damn thing. And I mean, we were a quarter of a second away from death. There was four of us on board. And the antennas on the bottom of the aircraft were all bent. One of the, the rims, the, the main landing gear rims was split in half. The tires popped. I mean, it was a, it was, wow. we were that close. And you uh, hit the ground. Yeah. We hit the ground. Oh yeah. Can't we hit the you can't be any closer. Oh no, we were, listen, the, the probability of kill the ground is 100%. So we, uh, we bounced up into the air and I looked over at the other pilot after about 20 seconds of stunned silence. And I can't tell you over this podcast what I said, but exactly. <laughs> but I was like, what the dude? I mean, you had one job, fly the freaking helicopter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he's a good friend of mine to this day. Um, just and, we just you know, don't fly I, anymore together. <laughs> no, no, we actually flew the whole time, but you know, it was you know, a light from my flashlight had gone up on the windshield, and he got disoriented and into a descent. Oh, and wow. uh, man, I mean, I was that close, and so I, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, we bounced up, we flew back, and I mean, we had a couple other really, really close calls where we got in some big sandstorms up in Iraq, similar to that. But that one, whew, I mean, that was, I was that close. And, you know, coincidentally, just a few weeks later, we lost an aircraft in very similar circumstances, a quarter mile off the end of the runway coming out of a mission in Iraq. It was a big, it was foggy. 
and they they killed seven. We'd flown up to get a pull a, a special operator that was up in Iraq doing reconnaissance. He had hurt his back. They were bringing him back down to Sergeant Major, and the aircraft crashed a quarter mile off the end of the runway and killed seven. Mm. So that's how close it was for me. And by the way, those seven, the families of those seven are educated by the Special Ops Warrior Foundation. Mm. So that was one that uh, definitely got my attention. Had a bad parachute jump where a guy in front of me, his uh, line from his his static line got wrapped around my arm and pulled me around the back of the aircraft while I was cool. jumping out on a night jump one time. And that wasn't fun, but not, that wasn't nearly as exciting as the is that crash. Wow. Hmm. Wow. When, when flying some of these missions, and obviously a lot of them are under the cover of darkness, but did you ever have, and this might just be from this, you know, a citizen's viewpoint of looking at movies, watching movies. Um, but did you ever have like a moment where you could, you knew an RPG was like headed your way? Oh yeah. Lots of them. The thing about RPGs though, with the, you know, the Afghans and the Iraqis is, you know, they're not a precision weapon system, right? I mean, they're, yeah. you know, um, the, uh, they shoot at the sound. And so at night, they can, in a week, you know, they call the 160th the Night Stalkers for a reason. You know, we prefer to fight at night. We will fight during the day and we have fought during the day. But, you know, the night offers us a significant tactical advantage over our adversaries. So we prefer to do things at night. Um, and uh, I used to joke, um, when the enemy would shoot RPGs at the sound of the helicopter, they would generally, you were more in danger of getting hit if you were number two or number right. three or number four in the formation than lead. And oh. I'd say, which is why I always like to fly in lead. So, <laughs> you know, um, we had one guy that I flew with, they were on an operation. This has happened a couple times, but uh, one for sure, they were, uh, they were out in, out west Iraq in an area called Al Rupa. And this, uh, this gentleman uh, took an RPG, it, it slammed underneath his seat and was lodged underneath his seat and it did not go off. Wow. Yeah, he flew back with that thing underneath his seat. Oh, man. Yeah, right? Incredible. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, oh, I can't even imagine... Uh, as we're wrapping things up, I, I did have one other question, and this kind of sure. stems from just Chisholm and I. Chisholm and I have talked a lot about society um, since we started this show up, and societal issues. Uh, a lot of that here in 2020, stemming from, uh, well, to be frank, race relations. And you've been to these places across the world where it seems like cultures different ethnicities really do hate each other and want to kill each other oh, and yeah. and so maybe maybe this is going to bring me to the depths of despair you know as far as your answer or it's going to give me hope for america because i don't think that it's as bad as it really is i don't think americans hate each other you've been to uh you know iraq's trying to uh, dump gas on the kurds and you've seen how the uh israelis and palestinians hate each other um is that a different kind of hate that you've seen over there compared to what, what you think our country is going through right now? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I've never really considered it, but yeah, the, the short answer is yes. I mean, our differences, 
among our country, you know, and, and some are extreme on both sides, are, are not that we don't want to be Americans and not that we don't love our country for the most. I mean, there's probably, you know, a couple of knuckleheads out there that are like yeah, that. Yeah, Portland might have something to say about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> but it's more that we disagree on the path to making our country great. There is a, you know, I mean, and now that's, I'm not going to, I don't want to downplay the severity of those disagreements because we certainly have them. But the hatred between Sunnis and Shias in the Arab world is unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, I used to think that all Arabs hated the Jews and they definitely, you know, most do, but they hate each other. You know, the Sunnis and Shias hate each other um, just as much, if not more, in my opinion. I mean, the mothers may have a different opinion. So I think, you know, the challenges that we're dealing with in our country They've probably always been there. They've just been more amplified now by social media and instant access to information. You know, General McChrystal, who I served under, used to talk about the 24-hour news cycle and how that's changed, you know, changed the way we uh, take in information. And I agree with him. And, you know, so, but I think it all comes down to you know, you just have to know that you have a voice. And sometimes we forget that. And we do have a voice. We, we live in a democracy. You know, this, I mean, this is a particularly difficult time, but in the end, the process, you know, worked. Whether you agree with the results of the election or not, I'm not going to get political, but I still would rather live here than anywhere else in the world. And I think the challenges that we face in this country are significant and will take decades maybe to get through, maybe not. I believe a good leader, I've seen bad units that were horrible turn around in short order when they get a good leader in there. Um, But, you know, I I think those challenges that we have in our country pale in comparison to what you'd see in the challenges that Iraq and Afghanistan are gonna face in there as they as they try to develop as a democracy and as a country and, and, and span those um, ethnic hatreds and differences. I mean, it's a generational thing. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. I mean, it's going to take generations and generations for Afghanistan to break out of, uh, of what they were in. And again, you know, my humble opinion, education, and in developing a sense of nationalism, not tribalism, is a key part of that. Will they ever make it happen completely? Will it resemble a U.S. democracy? Nope. I don't think so, but I think it can and will get better. Tribalism, that's an interesting point there. Uh, the first podcast that we ever recorded was on tribalism. So uh, something that we've both uh, researched and, and certainly paid attention to. Um, and interesting answer and uh, and it does give me hope though to see that uh you know we're, i don't think it's as bad as as certainly the news and social media are making it out to be as uh, as americans and in, in our direction um certainly difficult times but you know chisholm's talked me back off the ledge a couple times maybe <laughs> <laughs> um but hey general this has been a real treat thank you so much for your time. I do want to uh, plug the uh, the website again. It's specialops.org. That's, That's correct. To, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And thank you once again uh, for your service. We, we certainly appreciate your time and uh, everything that you've given to this country. Now, hey, listen, uh, Cable and Chisholm, I really enjoyed it. I mean, this was a, it was fun. It was a, you know, a good talk, candid discussion, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. It's been our pleasure. Same here, General, General Mocker. All right. Well, hey, good luck to uh, your Buccaneers. We'll see, see how that plays out this weekend. But thanks again. God bless. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up with you somewhere on down the road. Anytime, gents. I'd, I'd uh, sit down and chat with you on, on any number of topics. Just let me know. All right. Thank you. All right. You guys take care. So that is going to do it for episode 20 of Justified Pursuit. Uh, Chisholm keeps reminding me to remind you guys uh, to please do leave a review on Apple Podcast. Helps us out. Uh, helps somehow gets us in the algorithm. He keeps trying to explain it to me. You'd think someone that's been in radio and podcasting for over a decade would have it sorted out by now, but I don't. So anyway, leave us a, uh, a five-star review if you like what you hear. And certainly uh, you can contact us via the website. Our email addresses are on there. Uh, but Or if you have feedback for uh, Major General Huttmacher, uh, he'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Send it our way. We'll get it to him, or you could contact him through the uh, Special Operations Warrior Foundation. He's, uh, his information's all over that website, which is specialops.org. Um, I think that is about all I've got for you. So for Chisholm Cook, I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for being a part of Justified Pursuit. We'll see you guys next week.